Welcome to the Aspen Music Festival in Schools, High Notes, a weekly discussion panel with the great artists that come to Aspen each summer to perform, many of them alumni of our teaching program. I'm your host, Alan Fletcher. Now please enjoy this next edition of High Notes. Good afternoon. I'm Alan Fletcher. I'm the president of the Aspen Music Festival and School. We are here in Pepka Auditorium of the Aspen Institute, and we are on the radio uh, with the Aspen Public Radio, uh, which will broadcast this uh, subsequently, uh, and also it will be available as a podcast, um, anywhere podcasts exist in the universe, uh, but uh, most likely you'll find it at our website, uh, www.aspenmusicfestival.com. So I'm joined today uh, by three uh, wonderful soloists uh, who are going to appear this evening in a chamber recital. Uh, Augustine Hadlich, violin, uh, Maria Elizabeth Hecker on cello, and Martin Helmchen on piano. And they will be playing piano trios in Harris Hall this evening, um, Wednesday, August 9th. Uh, at 8.30 p.m. Uh, we have already had the extraordinary pleasure of hearing Augustine play Brahms, a violin concerto, on last Sunday. Uh, but we will have Martin playing Beethoven's fourth piano concerto with the Aspen Chamber Symphony on Friday, August 11th, and that's at 6 p.m. Um, I thought I would start by ruthlessly putting Augustine on the spot um, in the following way. Uh, how many summers have you been with us now? It's four? I think this might be the fifth. So the first time was 2011 when yeah. I came to, um, for the first time, uh, to play double concertos with Julia Fischer, yeah. uh, which was really, really fun. Uh, I still remember it. Uh, it was such a fun experience. And then I came back in uh, 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, and then since then, every right. year. Right. And, yeah. and so each of, of these years uh, have seen wonderful, wonderful performances by Augustine. But I will observe that what happened Sunday was something quite special, um, a jam-packed tent and the, the attentiveness to your Brahms concerto uh, and, and the absolute joy the audience had in it was something very special to see. Um, I think it, it puts you in a... a a, a very special category among our artists. You felt that the audience um, would listen to anything, and then they got to listen to Paganini Caprice, uh, uh, which is really something. But uh, there's no question in all of this. I'm just observing um, that, that you've now reached a, a level that, that we see with only a couple of artists here. Um, and uh, then I'll observe uh, that Martin and Maria Elizabeth are making their debuts, I think, in Aspen. So uh, you have this to look forward to. But let's talk about the Brahms Concerto uh, for just a moment, if you will, because um, I thought you had such a, a closely argued and also deeply felt performance, and that's what you could feel, 2,000 people just following every thought uh, in it. I guess that's not a question either. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Brahms Violin Concerto, I think uh, most violinists will list it among their favorite mm -hmm. uh, violin concertos, their favorite pieces of music. Um, and I've been uh, playing it and studying it for um, uh, over 20 years now, I guess. Uh, and, um, and over the years, I've, I kept thinking about it and rethinking everything. And uh, I, I was telling the conductor when he asked me what tempo I play in the first move, and I told him, I've, well, I've played it uh, so extremely slow, and I've played it so extremely fast. I've basically done every tempo now. Uh, so at some point, 
but it's uh, the amazing thing with this uh, with that type of music is that um, even if you play it a million times, you do still find mm. new things that you hadn't seen before. Mm. You suddenly understand things uh, differently, change your mind from one performance to the next about little details and. Um, so it, it ne I, it, this is one of the, one of the pieces I could really play a million times in a row and not uh, never get bored or tired. Huh. With. Well, it did seem to me also that you had a particularly close musical relationship with Joshua Wallerstein, who was conducting. And Joshua is a very gifted violinist himself, but I thought he was giving such attention to you that it, it felt like a good partnership. Well, this is a this is the concerto uh, in the violin repertoire that's maybe the most collaborative, mm -hmm. the most like chamber music, um, I think, in how uh, I have to always listen to the orchestra um, most of the time. Almost, uh, I don't have the themes. I'm just uh, following the orchestra, and it's as a back and forth. And because of that, it feels very different with every conductor and with every mm. orchestra. And it's a, it's particularly uh, enjoyable and really comes together in a beautiful way when. Uh, the orchestra is playing as well as they did on Sunday, oh. and with somebody who's as musical as as Josh, who feels mm -hmm. phrases very musically, and um, and then I think it's always a little bit maybe easier to uh, sometimes when uh, when a violinist has played the piece themselves, or when the conductor is a violinist and has played the piece, and then sometimes they can kind of intuit what you're mm -hmm. going to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe uh, sometimes there can be a moment when he knows what I'm going to do even before I know what I'm going to huh. do. Huh. Great. Well, on um, the theme of partnership, uh, then let me introduce uh, Martin and Maria Elizabeth. Uh, since they are making their debuts and are not as well known to you as Augustine, uh, Martin was born in Berlin uh, and uh, studied piano uh, in Germany, but um, with uh, a Russian teaching. That's correct, yes. yes. And then also with Aryavardi, who uh, was here. Yeah, I don't know if very frequently, but he was one of the first people who yeah, so, told me stories about Aspen. Yeah, so one of Martin's teachers, Ari Vardi, who now lives in Tel Aviv but teaches uh, in Germany uh, still, and he is with us on our permanent faculty now uh, in, in the summer. He also was Fima Bronfman's teacher in Israel after Fima came from Russia to Israel. Um, but uh, Martin uh, came to worldwide attention uh, through the Clara Haskell competition, uh, and then Maria Elizabeth Hecker uh, came to worldwide attention through a Rostropovich concours. Um, so I wondered if you would talk about the role of competitions in or the lack of role of competitions uh, in your careers. Uh, for me, I would regard this, this competition as one little step among, and not little, I mean a major step, but among other steps. So it was not the event that changed everything overnight, but uh, it was a time of some uh, consecutive important things, uh, grants, uh, the, the Credit Suisse Young Artist Award, and getting on a BBC New Generation program, things like that, that I felt were, were equally important to the, to the competition, and that also still, uh, because they were not uh, so massive from now until tomorrow left me the time to still develop with enough um, breath and uh, develop my artistic language slowly and decide what uh, I want to go for artistically and what not and um, develop certain values 
career-wise, uh, piano-wise, and that was a very healthy situation for me. And uh, to hand it over to Marie, I think with her it was exactly the opposite, her comp competition experience. Yeah, that's true, actually. Uh, because I didn't play any big competition before, and I was uh, 18 years old and um, was very naive, in a way. And um, suddenly I just uh, won this competition without... Uh, even hoping that I would get to the second round. And then all the concerts came by that, came with that competition. And I was not prepared, I must admit. So uh, it was, in the beginning, a um, great experience for me, of course, but then it can be too much, because if you don't get to that concert career step by step, it can be very difficult. But... Um, now with a good balance of chamber music as well, not only solo uh, concertos, it's, uh, it's a tough life, but it's a nice life. Well, it reminds me of, of a, a story in, in the visual arts. I had a friend um, who, when she was 18, uh, was a freshman at the Cooper Union, and as a performance art joke piece, she made an entry for the Rome Prize in art um, and the piece was meant to be experienced ironically as a comment on the art world, and instead she won the Rome Prize uh, at the age of 18, and Robert Motherwell was the, the head of the jury and arranged for her to have a Guggenheim Fellowship as well that she hadn't even applied for. And she said she wasn't ready, and that it sort of set her back five, six, seven years uh, instead of being a tremendous impetus uh, for her. And plus, uh, everyone in the art world hated her. I mean, other painters because uh, of, of that. Augustine, how about competitions and, and your own career? Well, um, I, came to, I came to America, to New York, when I was uh, 20 to study at Juilliard. And that is when I was starting to do some competitions. And I had... Uh, uh, it, it didn't go too well for the first few uh, that I entered uh, because I had never, I think, been under such pressure. Uh, because I actually, for me, uh, when I'm on stage in front of people, that it's it's a, that felt familiar and uh, and it's a good feeling. But when you see judges who are writing things down and uh, sometimes in some play competitions also, the, even the audience has that attitude that you know you play something out of tune and there's just, you know, you see everyone start getting their pen out. And, and so I find that really uh, it's, and, and, and the fact that you, comp that you play against other people, not with other people, that there's kind of this element to it, I found it very difficult. Um, but I, I won the Indianapolis competition in 2006 and it was an incredibly happy moment, especially also because I knew I would never have to do another competition. So this finally uh, done with that. And it opened a lot of doors, but actually the wonderful thing about that competition is it's, um, um, it is not like, um, like your experience that there are uh, 100 concerts sort of immediately. The concerts basically start half a year later, but mostly one or two years later that uh, you have more concerts. So there, there was a time at first to uh, kind of regroup and start playing uh, different pieces and, you know, um, have, have time to, to get used to it. And the other, I think I was very lucky. So at the time, actually, I was very impatient. I wanted to play with, with big orchestras and all of that because I thought I knew everything. But 
I, th I think now in hindsight, it was very good for me that uh, most of the concerts initially were with very small orchestras. Mm. So I played with, I think, every small orchestra in the state of Indiana, uh, for example, or like all um, these, you know, um, well, Evansville, Richmond, Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana, all these, these orchestras, which are all, uh, you know, very, very good. These were good concerts, but I had the opportunity to play some of the major repertoire uh, in concert and gain experience with it. Uh, because I think if I had gone uh, in front of a major orchestra or, or, or like a major venue like here or something like that, um, I'm not sure I would have been quite ready with that repertoire yet. So it, two or three years later, I had my first big debuts because people canceled and I, I got to play these cancellations and I was more re ready for it. So I'm very grateful that it was kind of uh, more slow, and more like what Martin said, that there was time to uh, also got to know myself, uh, how how um, how I need to travel and how I need to prepare and how my body reacts and all those things that you can't really know until you've really been traveling week after week and playing many pieces. Uh, so I think if I had played uh, immediately as many concerts as I do now, uh, um, I wouldn't have been able to handle it, actually. So Marie, you in the Rostropovich competition um, swept all the prizes. So there's the, the jury prize, but also typically an audience prize and is a, a commissioned work prize or, you know. So I think you were the first person ever uh, to win all the prizes. Well, I thought I would mention that. Nice. Um, <laughs> Since it is in your official bio, I will be uh, uh, indiscreet enough to say that, that Martin and Marie are life partners as well as musical partners, is it? Yes. And so you, you, go, <laughs> you go all over the world as a duo, um, and then you, have, uh, you invite in extremely distinguished uh, other people to form larger chamber music ensembles as you're doing uh, for us tonight. But I thought we would talk about the genre of the piano trio. And if you would just comment um, on it, uh, you're, you're playing one of the early uh, piano trio works, uh, Haydn, uh, to start. Um, some people feel as though Haydn created the piano trio. Um, and um, how would you differentiate it uh, first of all, your work as a duo together, and you're playing sonatas and, and, and other you know, uh, duo works, then you add a third person. How does that change uh, both the rehearsal dynamic and the concert dynamic? And then let's think about piano quartets and quintets as well. So, of course, Marie and I uh, try to play together as much as possible. Um, it's not easy to put everything uh, into the calendar in a way that it makes sense career-wise and family-wise and musically, so it's quite a challenge. But we first got to know each other uh, by playing together, even before we became a, a private couple. So uh, I always feel that we kind of um, keep the professional mode when we play and rehearse, and that there's not too <laughs> She may disagree, please. <laughs> feel free to disagree. Um, so I feel that we are not carrying too much private stuff. We may also ask Augustine to disagree. Is that <laughs> fair to say? Or I feel we don't carry too much of our private stuff into the rehearsals. Uh, and That's been great. Uh, I, I think uh, I've definitely in the past at some chamber festivals played with uh, in, in groups where there are 
where there is a couple, and it can sometimes really be it can be a real real problem. Yeah. But uh, they uh, they get along great in rehearsal and musically, that. and yeah. it's just yeah. <laughs> and many things. I mean, when people uh, this is true in general in chamber music, when people know each other extremely well. Many things don't need to be said anymore. So sometimes mm -hmm. I notice that they just look at each other and they already know. Mm -hmm. But there's <laughs> what's also going on. Yeah. there's always enough that we uh, keep discussing amongst each other with Marie, or that we disagree on musically. That I don't feel that we kind of come as a as a cell uh, like some some closed um, musical organism that the other person has to kind of try to fit in to yeah so I, I very much feel when we play with friends which we do a lot in groups up to quintets um, that everything is is very equal and uh, we are not um, always Uh, protecting the other one's opinion or not attacking more aggressively because it's the partner, which I also have seen many times in, in ensembles. Um, I at least feel that this um, works quite naturally because we've known each other on the professional level for, for such a long time, for, for even longer, and we've so much mutual uh, respect for what the other one Uh, does as a as a player, not only as a as a human being, um, and I feel it's it's a, a wonderful blessing to be able to um, to combine uh, private and musical life. And you can imagine how difficult it is to have independent uh, traveling schedules and have a little child, uh, which we also have. So uh, of course it helps a lot if you can at least spend some of the time that you're on the road together on the road. Um, And then we've got um, so many uh, wonderful friends that, for instance, it's uh, a little bit uh, funny, I think, that it has taken us so long to get together with, with Augustine and finally find dates because we've known each other um, via common friends for a long time, but actually only met last year or two years ago, I think, for the I first time. I think it was time. two years ago. Yeah. But I remember that um, over 10 years ago, um, somebody was when somebody first told me, You really need to know Martin Helmchen, and you have to start playing together. And it is, uh, and in fact, it was Christoph Poppen who we saw I last see. last I week. Yeah. And 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 then I kept kept uh, hearing him hearing him play on recording, and I kept seeing the name. And and, and then we've been now for for years trying to find. In my it's case, been really it was wonderful. probably yeah, it is. In my case, it was probably Julia Fischer, whom you had mentioned, who, who first told me, "Hey, this is <laughs> wonderful. Let's get together." Um, so it has taken us a little bit too long, but now it's great that it has, has finally happened. And just two words for the piano trio, maybe, as a, as a um, format. I think it's uh, a little bit of a uh, almost hybrid situation, that it's a real chamber music formation, but that you also still have um, three soloists who uh, find uh, lots of... Um, ways to, to express um, instrumental skills and, and, and there's always movements um, that are particularly um, written in a prominent way for one of the, of the three players. So there's a lot of um, things where three soloists can actually really enjoy themselves and, and amongst each other. And also, of course, the chamber music aspect that uh, yeah you cannot put together Uh, piano trio in a couple of hours, it still needs a lot of rehearsals. So it has um, very attractive aspects of both, I would say. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there is a, uh, sometimes more yeah, more individuality, Some, that oftentimes it's three individual voices mm -hmm. in conversation, whereas in a string quartet, that would be the 
the formation where you don't you don't throw together a string quartet in in a week. Um, it, it, string quartets take many years to find a common sound because it has to blend so much entirely. But what I think is is interesting in the in the um, um, evolution of the piano trio is that initially there were really piano sonatas with two people sort of helping out. So when we're playing uh, Haydn, uh, whenever I have melodic lines, it's usually um, doubled by the right hand of the piano. So um, we are more sort of supporting him in the Haydn. And then uh, later on through the repertoire, when we get to, when we get to Brahms, uh, it is really three uh, equal voices. Uh, yeah. And of course, we will take it as far as Takemitsu. Uh, so we, uh, you'll get the... Yeah, full overview of the history of the piano trio, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, so that is uh, the the program. But actually, there's a fourth work that we'll get to uh, on on the program. But I just want to continue with the idea. So um, the idea of, as you say, Haydn seemed to be composing a piano work with obbligato, uh, other things happening uh, with it, and and very much for uh, an intimate. Use these were these were not intended as concert pieces, um, in the manner of a symphony, but then you add a viola and now you have a piano quartet. It's an extremely important body of literature, but as far as I know, there are no touring piano quartets. There are touring piano trios, the Bozart Trio and and uh, Laredo Robinson and the Wallersteins and many many p piano trios that tour the world. Uh, but the piano quartet is not that way, and then a piano quintet, add another violin, now you have a string quartet plus a piano. So um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about piano quartets and what is going on with them. I mean, now in Germany, since, I don't know, 10 years maybe, I would say there are some young piano quartets. Um, of course, there's much less literature than for the trio. Um, so there's not as much to play, so after a couple of years you may have to repeat yourself or commission new works. Um, but I find it an extremely attractive um, constellation, and I personally have grown up or grown into chamber music uh, very much via piano quartets. I just had a group um, in my teenage years uh, that worked very well together, which was a quartet, so that's why um, I was... Um, acquainted earlier with all the, the piano quartet repertoire than with the trios, actually. I've still got quite a lot to, to catch up in the piano trio repertoire. Unlike Marie, who has played with siblings already from... How old were you? I was six years old. Six, oh, sorry. So, so before most people even start to play the cello, she already played in a piano trio with her, with her siblings. So, I don't know. I, I have seven siblings, so everyone is playing an instrument. So, of course, uh, I was kind of forced to play <laughs> from the beginning on uh, chamber music, which was really a blessing now for me. And, um, yeah, trio for me was always a very um, tricky combination, actually, because I played with my older sister, she was the violin, and with my older brother, he's a pianist. And... As you're three persons, it's normally two are fighting and one is uh, waiting until it's over. <laughs> and then maybe in the end I say something. So I was the part who always was quiet and hoping that the fight would be over and then um, we were rehearsing. But it, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's the same with three children. It's always 
it's a difficult number. So my favorite combination would be piano quartet, actually. So I'm looking uh, for a stable piano quartet, but yeah, it's, uh, it's for the future, maybe. Not for now. <laughs> well, I, th I think that in, in the time when, they, when these first trios and piano quartet were written, this kind of chamber music was, uh, was written to be, uh, the music was sold um, often to, to families who would play it amongst themselves. I mean, very much like how, how you started. And when I first started uh, playing the violin, it was because everyone in my family played an instrument. This kind of house music tradition, uh, uh, which is very typically German, I would, I would, I would say, I think, uh, I, I think so. And, and at some point, so piano trios were very popular, but then Mozart had this idea what if we write a piano quartet, add a viola, it'll sound great. And in fact, I mean, in fact, I think it is actually maybe the best uh, uh, combination there is. And uh, he wrote these two piano quartets, um, mainly really with the, the first, idea right? that, that there are. That was yes, known, basically, uh, that, was, that, that was it. And then um, with the idea, I think this, this will sell really well because uh, most families are more than three people. So, you know, and I think historically, maybe the reason why um, the piano part is the main one because because the most experienced musician would be sitting at the piano, and the other people who were maybe still learning <laughs> would play the violin and the cello. So it was it wasn't um, it wasn't written to be performed as you, as you just said. It wasn't written to be performed in a hall for people the way that the symphonies of these composers were, or the, some of the or maybe even the the string quartets, which are much more demanding technically and. Yeah. Well, I, I knew a wonderful pianist, uh, Patricia Zander, uh, who is a brilliant chamber music uh, coach. She taught chamber music at Harvard, where she had students like uh, Yo-Yo Ma and Jamie Boswell and Lin Cheng. But she would say, and I don't know if this is nice to even repeat, she would say a piano trio is exactly as strong or weak as the pianist. Um, and and in, in other forms of chamber music, that's just not true. Um, but as a from a composer's point of view, I would say it's way easier to write a piano quartet than a piano trio because you're so exposed in the trio and and there's just, it, it's much more cozy. Uh, my composition teacher used to say vis-a-vis uh, -vis string trios, I wanted to write a string trio. And he said, no, no, that's a, that's a terrible genre. Um, it is so hard because a string quartet is a composition in three voices for four instruments. But in a string trio, you only have the three and, and now you're stuck. Um, I don't know if you do string trio work. I used to, uh, when I was a student, play string trio. It is the hardest thing because you, are, you feel very exposed and oftentimes the music is still in four part harmony. So that means somebody has to play double stops all the time. Uh, and uh, I think in general, actually, in a way, chamber music gets easier the more people there are, right? So uh, uh, a string quintet is somehow much easier to rehearse and put together than a string quartet. And a sextet is easier. And I, think I find the piano quintet, uh, it's, it's more forgiving somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, so many people are playing, there's so much going on. Um, um, the, the smaller the formation is, the more it all has to be, right? Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, about the, I'm still thinking about the, the slightly scary sentence with the pianist in the, <laughs> the piano trio. <laughs> um, it's definitely, definitely true, of course, for the earlier uh, piano trios, um, Haydn, Mozart, 
um, which still have this this concept of rather uh, piano and obbligato accompanying um, string voices, especially the, the cello, of course, um, often has a kind of continual function still. Um, but then also later on, um, there is this tendency of extremely difficult and intense piano parts, maybe even more than in, in piano quartets, so that the trios were often uh, little piano concertos that probably also the composers have, have written for themselves, um, which uh, is an effect because there were so many, so many pianist composers uh, around. And it is more obvious than in the in the piano quartet or piano quintet literature. That's true. Well, and Beethoven certainly, because Beethoven wrote a piano quartet, but it's not nearly as important a work as his yeah. trios are. This is something I've always asked myself: uh, why he hasn't even tried? Because we have these two gorgeous Mozart uh, piano quartets, which are amongst his greatest, both greatest chamber music works, um, and then we have these. 10 or so Beethoven trios, uh, including great masterworks. But, uh, and, and he was somebody who, who tried everything, yeah? who, who would not leave any genre um, unexplored. Um, so that was always uh, something that I couldn't make sense of why he has not tried at least to write a, a proper piano quartet. I don't know yeah, if you know a, anything a, about an it. An important passage, uh, is it in opus 10 number one? Um, a piano sonata that he had originally written as part of a piano quartet. Mm -hmm. But he was able to just lift it up and stick it into a piano sonata, which sort of tells you something about what that quartet might have been like. So Marie, I, I, did, have, did you play trios with your family? Because it, since it's such an exposed and sort of fraught uh, ensemble, maybe your arguments would have been even worse. No. <laughs> No, this program actually we didn't we didn't play together, but um, we played. Uh, this is normally I don't have a trio which I didn't play in the in the repertoire actually because I really played many 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 years piano trio. That's why I would like to explore the repertoire for piano quartet as well. Um, no, but uh, this formation works really well. But that that is a compliment for Augustine, I would say. And then uh, this evening you have a duo uh, for violin and cello by Kodai. Um, how does that fit into the program? Well, I just, uh, when we were talking about the program, I, I always feel like it's great in chamber music to um, break up the formation and have smaller, a smaller group, bigger group. And, and um, it also gives Martin a little bit of a break. Yes, that's what I just wanted to say. I'm very grateful for, for this program because I <laughs> also like the idea of having uh, duos included in trio programs or trios and quartet programs, so not always have everybody on stage. But what normally happens is that the pianist has to play everything. And he already has the, the highest number of notes and all these difficult piano trios and then um, has to add a, a sonata or... Uh, other other pieces, so I'm very very happy that I have uh, 25 minutes off yes. for a change. Yeah, and the Kodai duo is uh, an amazing piece. Uh, that's um, I always loved playing loved playing it, and uh, it's been really amazing to play it with Marie, who plays the cello part uh, so uh, beautifully and with so much uh, musicality and passion. And um, so I'm really looking forward. Uh, I'm really looking forward to tonight. So it's a real duo. Both instruments are um, 
it, it, the parts are very virtuosic. He really uses uh, the full potential of the cello and the piano. Everything, um, every technique you can you can make difficult chords, fast passage work, uh, harmonics, and and it's very. Um, it's very, very Hungarian and um, and uh, gypsy influenced. Kodai was, of course, one of these composers um, who really uh, whose music seems to flow naturally out of the folk music tradition of his of his country. And you can hear so much folk music in this piece. Um, yes, what do you think? <laughs> the same, absolutely. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a wonderful piece. <laughs> then you move uh, to Takamitsu uh, trio and. Uh, Tell us about the piece and about uh, Takamitsu. You would not have been able to know him, I think. No, unfortunately, I never uh, got to know him, which I'm very sad, ab sad about. When did he die in 96? Yeah, 96. 96. Yeah. Oh. And, and, um, and so this is a piece, none of us have played it before. I heard it once um, a long time ago, and I, I really like Takamitsu's music in general, and I played some of his violin uh, music. And when I heard this uh, this piece, I thought uh, such a beautiful piece and totally different from everything else in the program. I think it's a totally um, his, his language is very influenced by French music, especially Messiaen, and you will hear many beautiful, beautiful chords and colors. Um, and it's a very different approach to uh, harmony from the rest of the program. So I would say that in general, in something like Brahms or Haydn. The harmony is very functional, so chords, they may also be beautiful, but it's mostly where they're leading, where they're coming from, and there's tension that is released, and that's what it, it's all about. In Takemitsu, it's not where it's going, it's just that there is a chord, and it's beautiful, and you just enjoy it for a moment, and you have this beautiful atmosphere for a few bars, and then it changes, and then it's a different color. It's very impressionist, uh, and I think it'll be a total change of, uh, totally different way of listening, which will... Um, kind of maybe cleanse the palate before we dig into this third Brahms trio, yeah. Well, Takemitsu was very involved with visual art and film as well, and so I think that idea that, that the music unfolds as a montage or as a as kind of tableau is, is important. And it's also something uh, typically Asian, I feel, uh, something that has influenced the, the European music of the 20th century a lot, starting with uh, Ravel Debussy and their pentatonic scales, um, but also this um, general approach that music doesn't have to be have, doesn't have to have this dramaturgic progression. Doesn't always have to lead from A to B via something else, or that, as Augustine said, chords don't have to be functional, but that it's more like a meditation or a still life. If you're thinking from from the visual arts, something that you um, that you look at maybe go around from from different different angles but that doesn't necessarily have a story like uh, a dramaturgic uh, progression also it repeats itself sometimes which is also uh, something that is um, um, for, for at least for the for the romantic uh, later romantic uh, European music uh, a rather alien concept uh, that that the same things just appear in the same way again and you listen to them in a different way because time has passed and you've heard different things in between. So it's very interesting and very different from the rest of the program, as Augustine said. I think it's the kind of music where um, it, you shouldn't expect anything to happen, basically. No, so nothing happens in this piece, but you just are in this 
in this in this mood and enjoy this uh, sort of state state of mind or meditative state of mind. So that's something that uh, that is com really completely different from the, uh, the German tradition of music. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really useful uh, for the audience to know uh, listening to the program. Uh, because it, it's a deliberate choice that you have made as, as musicians programming the concert that there will be different ways of hearing and that the listener might think, I'm listening in a, I'm in a totally different mood with the Takemitsu compared to then the gigantic Brahms that's going to come after it. it. It occurred to me this morning that we're having a, a tremendous run of these huge Brahms works uh, we had the second piano concerto, the violin concerto, we've had the third symphony, we have the first symphony uh, tonight at 6 p.m. Um, and, um, and now this. So uh, do you make a relation, Augustine, with the, the Brahms concerto and, and this trio and the, the rhetoric of the piece, I might say? Well, I, I think one of, the, one of the ways that playing chamber music has helped me so much in the past. Because I actually, I did not grow up playing chamber music, but then when I was a student, I started playing so much chamber music, or even mostly chamber music. And the discovery was that playing the chamber works, for example, of Brahms, really changed the way I looked at the violin concerto, and I started to understand the work better. Most, most great composers may, might have only written one violin concerto, but so much other music that you can play and enjoy and explore and so just knowing the language better helped me a lot. Um, I think these pieces um, don't, ha don't have too much in common because the this third piano trio is a very uh, fiery, very passionate uh, work um, and the violin concerto I think of, well I mean, certainly also, I, I don't know, it's hard to talk about music. Uh, <laughs> I'll stop, I'll stop trying. There's a bit of Hungarian influence in both works, definitely in the, in the last movements. So that's something that maybe will also tie, uh, there will be a bit of a bridge back to the Kodai. Um, I think we chose maybe partially this um, piece, well, because it's amazing, of course, it's an amazing piece of music. And it's uh, the shortest of the, of the trios, but it feels, it feels very big. There's so much music in it, um, so big. My favorite part of it is definitely the slow movement, which uh, is, has such an innocence, it's almost like a fairy tale. And it's, uh, it's very unusual because it's basically in 7-4, uh, or rather there's a 3-4 bar followed by two bars of 2-4 in 2-4 meter. And this type of meter change, certainly very unusual uh, at, the, at the time. And it's, but you don't you don't notice it when you listen to it uh, that there's any unusual meter. It just feels it's the most natural, most innocent thing. So I think it's just a total masterpiece. This. Yeah, I also find uh, peculiar how much uh, people tend to. Uh, Piano trios tend to only be interested in the in the first trio in the B. At least in Europe, it's very obvious that the the uh, Opus Eight. Um, B major trio um, is played whenever there's a Brahms trio, I would say 90% of the time it's this one and the, the C major and the C minor get a little bit neglected. And then also uh, how much happens in relatively short time, as, as Augustine said. It's one of the, in comparison to the other great Brahms chamber pieces, um, one of the shortest, I would say, also compared to the, definitely compared to the quartets and 
to a lot of the chamber music without piano. Um, so very significantly over 30 minutes, I think, the piece. Um, I thought. This one? Uh, this one, yes. No, it's, I think it's 25 or yeah, something. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Which but is unusual. Most for of the others are like 40, for, for sometimes standards. 50 when you get to the exactly. sextets. I mean, yeah. And still large. you have the impression of a very symphonic, symphonic work with many things that I also don't find in other Brahms pieces. So it, it shows the, the range of ideas and expression uh, within the, the Brahms universe. The, also the, um, the second movement is uh, something with this very ghosty, um, fleeting um, atmosphere. Flüchtig, is there a better word in oh, English? Fleeting, fleeting yeah. is... Yeah. Uh, or volatile, I don't know if, this, if that's a word. So it's like some spooky thing that has just happened and after a very short time it's it's gone and you wonder, wow, was that a Brahms movement? And then also this, this slow movement is very unusual in this innocent fairy tale like mood. There are maybe two or three um, solo pieces in the late intermezzi that I can think of that have a similar mood, but also it is it is highly unusual. Already the beginning for me sounds uh, like uh, always reminds me personally of a Bruckner theme very much, um, the, the opening of the first movement. Um, so there's so much uh, that is just so interesting, even for, for Brahms lovers who know the music very well. Now you've said a couple of things that, that make me uh, ask the following uh, thought question. Um, all three of you tour uh, everywhere. You tour in Asia significantly. You, of course, are based in Europe and, uh, and, and tour in the U.S. Um, do you feel that musical culture, the recital culture, the concert culture, the repertoire culture is different in those places? Are there things, programs that you would play in Berlin and would not play in Hong Kong? I have always uh, felt um, that it's a privilege that I was in a situation that I could always present what I think uh, I want to play or what has artistic value for me. I know that this is not uh, an ordinary thing for any artist. And there's always, normally in every artist's life, situations where you have to compromise for practical reasons, financial reasons, personal reasons, whatever it is. So I feel very privileged that I um, felt whatever I felt had to develop inside of me what wants to, to come out. Uh, I always had an audience for that, small or big or whatever it is, but I never had to go ways that I felt uh, were wrong for me. So I would, I would never personally, because I have that privileged background and uh, never change in interpretation. I know that some people do. <laughs> they, I know even people that I see on different festivals with different atmospheres and the, the interpretations come out in a different way. It's very subtle, of course, but uh, I, I sense that. And I try very much to avoid that because um, authenticity and um, being true to, to things you believe in artistically is, is a real main credo for me. Um, the, the only thing that I notice that is really different um, in the US um, is um, that um, this whole um, uh, movement of performance, of historic performance practice is much less important than in Europe. So this is something that nowadays young musicians in Europe really grow up with very naturally. So all this thinking that started with, with Nicolaus Harnoncourt mainly um, 
and a certain school of, of style that comes very much from uh, research of uh, uh, letters and manuscripts and everything that has developed a certain style of itself is um, everywhere in, in Europe now. And, and much less, I also don't really know of any period instrument orchestras I mean, there must be some, but I don't know many in the U.S. So this is, if, if I was asked for the main difference in the concert culture or how um, also people in, in the education uh, grow up, uh, I would say this is the thing that uh, I see that I kind of notice, which is a real difference. So interesting. In this program, that might apply to Haydn. You might... Yes, uh, I think that's, that's where you will notice it's notice it more um, and I mean this is changing I think everywhere and it's changing here here now too but sometimes in the music schools um, it's not something that people encounter at such an early age whereas I think in, in Germany at this point already growing up you will hear people really play something like Haydn or Mozart or Bach so different from something romantic and then that just influenced your whole um, way of thinking and the kind of sound you strive for. And here sometimes it might be more something that people encounter when they're actually in, in college, so much, much, much later. Um, so that's one difference. Perhaps uh, to some extent, the way that, I think in particularly when it comes to German music, like something like Brahms, uh, the way that you think about the, the music, maybe a bit more focus on analysis, on, on analyzing the form and phrasing and uh, that that's also something maybe that is sometimes taught earlier on in uh, some countries than it is in the United States and that's re really uh, helpful. But I think in terms of programming uh, between the US and and in Europe, um, I find that in both countries there are definitely pieces that should be programmed more. I, I see that in Germany the focus on German music is so big often, especially in uh, smaller towns there are many presenters who tell me if I want to play recital, I can't play new music because I don't, don't want to play the royalties. Uh, and it, that has happened numerous times. And there are some there are smaller orchestras that, uh, you know, I, I once a few years ago played basically the premiere uh, of the Barbara Concerto in, with, a, with, an important, with an important orchestra, orchestra in Germany uh, that never played it before or situations like this that uh, just because, of course, I mean, German music is very is very important in the repertoire, but I think in the U.S. you, you have, uh, I think, uh, in, you do have a nice overview of also music that's not from, doesn't come from the Germanic tradition. Uh, uh, um, but... Uh, well, and then how about in, in Asia? Would, would oh. In Asia, well, I think that really depends very much on the country. Uh, so... Uh, I think it's, you really can't generalize, my experience, I don't know what your experience was, but my experience was when I went to Japan, I see audiences that often know the pieces very well, and when I was playing something like Second Bartok Concerto there, I felt that just hundreds of people in the audience knew the piece, uh, had heard the piece many times, so then that's, it, it's a very different, I don't even know where you would find that elsewhere, maybe in Hungary, uh, I guess, uh, that the audience would know the piece, the Bartok, so well. Um, other countries, um, I haven't been everywhere in, in Asia, but I don't think, I think there are some other countries where the, uh, particularly something like German music is not as established, and then possibly 
when one makes programs, one might have to uh, uh, take that into consideration. You know, there's, there are, I think, programs you can play in Germany if you're going to... He was telling me he wants to do with Julia Fischer, all three Schumann violin sonatas. That's, I think, a program you can do in Germany, but maybe not everywhere in the world, because it requires an audience that already knows so much Schumann. That is true. No, that's all uh, very much my experience, too. Um, especially in Japan and South Korea, I would say this thing with prepared and extremely attentive audience is something unique in the world that um, people uh, sit with their scores not not to show off um, as as we we see that in Europe sometimes, but really with tiny little scores uh, just out of out of interest and and love uh, for the music. Program wise, um, they are more uh, less adventurous, I would say, so more conservative in the programming in 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 Asia. Um, that's definitely. Um, true, I personally get asked to play Germanic, Austro-Germanic repertoire all the time in, in Asia, um, maybe because it depends on the player, of course, because they think somebody who's uh, grown up in that tradition uh, probably has, has more to say in that style, I don't know. So um, I experience that more in Asia than in Europe, where I can pretty much uh, not play what I want, but there's a very open field and in the US US as well. And something about um, American audiences, which I really, and in parts that applies to British audiences as well, which I really love, is the responsiveness and, and openness, both uh, right after the performance, but then also off stage, backstage, that people are much more open in sharing their impressions in sharing what they liked and maybe not liked. And there's um, a lot of interaction. And this is something that I I would love to happen in, in Europe because very often there's a strong separation uh, between the players on stage and the audience and there's something artificial about the, the situation um, and, and not much interaction and this is something I really, really appreciate over here. And I would think especially in a chamber music context where you want there to be that shared... Uh Pardon me, sorry? Especially in the chamber music context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, Augustine uh, hinted at a point that I'll just say as a behind-the-scenes thing. When you're presenting music, as, as we do, um, if you present new music, you have to pay royalties. And so the concert costs more uh, right away uh, than if you're playing music that's in the public domain. And there's even a, a sort of crazy story, because we did Petrushka recently, and we did the 1919 version but the reason there's a 1947 version is that the 1919 version was going out of copyright and Stravinsky would have lost the royalties. So he created the new version, which he could then copyright and announced that no one was allowed to play the other version, which they could have been playing for free. Um, anyway, that's just a true story. Um, now you can choose between them and, and uh, many places like us choose the 1919 version. Um, by the way, this is totally off the subject, but I want to give a, a commercial for a very special event we have coming up on Saturday, and this is our composer show showcase. Um, what happens here is we have uh, 10 composers uh, with us this summer um, from all over the world, and uh, they have each written a, a work for orchestra as part of their curriculum. And we have had the Conducting Academy Orchestra uh, read all of these works, uh, rehearse them, record them, uh, each student composer paired with a student conductor. 
Um, and then the conducting, the composition faculty has chosen four of those works and then proposed to the young composers possible changes that they could make. And on Saturday, the Conducting Academy Orchestra will play these four works in the original version and then with some of the changes that the composition faculty have suggested. Uh, it's a fascinating process. It is uh, from 9 to 12 in Harris Hall. It is free. No tickets are required. Just show up. Uh, but we do this each year, and each year uh, there's a wonderful audience of two people, um, sometimes <laughs> as many as three. <laughs> and those three people say, why don't you ever tell people about this? It's so interesting. So that's why I'm doing it now uh, for you and for everyone on the radio. Uh, 9 to 12, uh, Saturday, August 12th in Harris Hall, the Composer Showcase. Uh, we have just one minute or so. Uh, that's all I've left uh, for the audience here in Pepka if you have questions or comments for our artists. And uh, do wait for the microphone. Okay, uh, since you had teachers, Russian teachers, and you grew up in Germany, I w wanted to know about the sort of cross-cultural influences and are there any differences? About which, which kind of influence, sorry? Cross-cultural influences when your teacher is, let's say, the Russian teacher in, while you're sort of growing up in a German pianistic tradition or is there such a thing, and etc. Yeah. It's, yeah, something that's difficult uh, for me to talk about uh, because um, it's, yeah, it was what I, I grew up with as a child already, so it's very hard to, <laughs> to look at it from outside and to see what actually of what I learned was specifically Russian or what uh, would have been more, uh, more German. So um, I feel that um, it's, um, there's a lot of globalization going on and the schools are not as clearly distinguishable. I don't know if that would apply for string playing as well, but Definitely, not yeah. as clearly distinguishable any more than they were 50 years ago. Um, but I still feel that there was some Russian DNA um, that was passed on. I don't know if that's a good comparison, but um, something from Russian school that has, um, has to do with, uh, um, in the very best sense, a physical approach that finally you have to, have to um, use your body for musical things. And if you know how to use it the right way, musical things will come, up, come out automatically, natural, something which is not so common in uh, the German school, I would say, um, where um, you play more with your brain and I would say um, have more work sometimes because the brain still <laughs> should be, still has a lot to think about and some things, if they happen from um, a very natural um, physical apparatus, as they say in, in the Russian school, um, it's a very good fundament. Uh, so this, I would say, is something I'm, I'm very grateful for from a Russian school. Um, and then from my teenage years on, I was influenced by so many uh, different people through playing chamber music and by uh, great pianists like Alfred Brendel and, and Mitsuko Uchida, whom I took lessons with, that then very, very soon um, this specific school thing became blurred and, and I, there was just so many influences and also many people from um, period performance, which I mentioned before, conductors uh, like uh, Philipp Herwege or, although I've never met him, John Elliott Gardner, just people who were very influential in their thinking um, also um, added to that. Um, so there's many, many different influences. 
No, if, if I may add this, and it, if this comes across as indiscreet, then we'll take it out of the radio broadcast. Um, but I was talking with Ari Vardi, the teacher, uh, who was one of Martin's teachers, and uh, he would regard himself as in the Russian tradition. And um, he said, very, very good for German pianists to study with Russian teachers, and very, very good for Russian pianists to study with German teachers. And I said, well, you're leaving something out then. Uh, what about German students and German teachers? And he said, well, I'm leaving that out. <laughs> Do you experience earworm, what we call in German Ohrwurm? You have that? Oh, yeah, all the time. Um, I, I was actually looking for, for a long time for a, a real uh, appropriate English translation for Ohrwurm, which I don't know if every, everyone else understands the, the concept that there's something that just keeps going on in your mind, some music, and you can't get rid of it. You, you call it an earworm as well? Yeah. Okay, I've always been told that earworm, maybe in, in, in England, in, in, in Europe, doesn't exist. So very good to know that, <laughs> that the, worm, the word, word exists. And I um, strangely often have that with, uh, with patterns or um, motifs that are actually not very catchy. So um, like there are some, some Brahms uh, motifs, for instance, in accompaniments, sometimes hemiolas, um, uh, sometimes strange things that at first sight seem kind of awkward and then slowly when you play the piece become very natural and these things uh, keep getting stuck in my mind for, for a long time. Like for instance, the very end, there's a very, very funny um, um, syncopated uh, motive at the very end of the Brahms C minor trio um, and this, yeah. is, this is something that uh, at the moment I can't get out of my mind. Hope you notice. Uh, just a point, um, you should be aware that in New York City we have the American Classical Orchestra, which is only period instruments and period pieces. Great. What, what's the name? Is it? The ACO, the American Classical Orchestra. Ah, oh, wonderful. I've never heard of it. I, uh, and I also out. believe that Great. Juilliard um, has concerts using period instruments. Yes, in fact, Juilliard added a, um, a, a department for uh, historical performance. Uh, after, I was, after I studied there, actually, I, so when I studied there, I felt like that was a bit uh, missing, but um, after that, they, mm -hmm. since then, they have um, added this department, and there's a lot of very exciting period playing now happening, happening there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so thank you to Martin Helmchen, uh, Marie Elizabeth Hecker, and Augustine Hadlich, who play a concert uh, Wednesday, August 9th, 8.30, that is today, uh, 8.30 p.m. in Harris Hall. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Aspen Music Festival and Schools High Notes. Thank you for joining us. Make sure to tune in next week for another discussion with some of the best and brightest of the classical world. For more information on the Aspen Music Festival and School and the 2017 season, going on now through August 20th, visit www.aspenmusicfestival.com. Aspen Music Festival.